Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. John Osborne for a conversation about Venice in the Middle Ages. Dr. Osborne is research professor and retired faculty member at Carleton University based in Canada's capital, Ottawa. He's a cultural historian of the early medieval Mediterranean, and he's the author of numerous publications over his career, including the book Rome in the Eighth Century, A History in Art, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, John. Thank you, Andrew. Pleased to be here. Great to have you on the show today. So that we create some parameters for the conversation, can you describe where Venice is on a map um, and uh, when when we talk about the Middle Ages, what period should we talk about and focus more on in this conversation? Okay, well, uh, Italy is often compared to a, a very tall boot. And uh, if, if you're thinking of that boot with the, uh, the toe sticking out to the left, which would be Calabria, and the heel sticking down to the right, which would be Apulia, uh, on the right side of the boot is the Adriatic Sea, and at the very top of the boot, uh, on the sort of on the left, is uh, a lagoon area uh, composed uh, by um, a series of rivers bringing sediment down from the Alps out to the Adriatic, and over time, uh, that's built up, and in the middle of that lagoon. A group of islands that today we call Venice. In terms of uh, a time period, um, it's interesting. Venice has a unique history uh, for a city in Italy because most cities in Italy, and indeed most cities in Western Europe, if you went back to the time of ancient Rome, you would find they still existed. I mean, obviously, Rome itself existed in the Roman period, uh, Naples, Milan. Paris, Lyon, London, York, I mean, all these places were uh, important cities in the Roman world because patterns of population settlement have tended not to change in Western Europe over more than two millennia. Venice is unique. It it didn't exist in the ancient world. Uh, There were cities on the mainland, and some of them do still exist, uh, Padua being a good example, uh, Trieste over on the other side of the top of the Adriatic. Uh, Venice didn't exist until, well, we don't know exactly when, but the first evidence we have, and indeed the first historian of Venice, a guy called John the Deacon, writing in the 11th century, says that Venice was founded by uh, people from northern Italy, from the mainland, fleeing to the islands when northern Italy was invaded. And certainly Northern Italy was invaded uh, numerous times towards what we call the the decline and fall of the Roman Empire to uh, to St. Edward Gibbon. Uh, But the principal uh, group who invaded and settled were the Lombards. And we know the Lombards came in to Northeastern Italy. They came across uh, from what is today, um, uh, you know, Slovenia and Croatia. Uh, they, They moved in. Uh, came down into the North Italian plain, into Friuli, in uh, about the year 568, to be exact. And uh, they quickly overran most of northern Italy, and they set up a capital 
uh, a kingdom with a capital at Pavia, another uh, old uh, Roman settlement, uh, which is in Lombardy. And uh, initially, there's a lot of you know destruction and and um, and looting, and but eventually the Lombards would settle, and they would just be a sort of uh, ruling class. Uh, but a lot of people uh, did flee, and they fled out to the islands of uh, the northern Adriatic, not just around Venice, but also places like uh, a number of cities are founded. A number of well, cities, towns, settlements are founded at this time. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, the great city of Aquileia, a very important city, that you can still see a lot of Roman remains there today. Um, the, the bishop of Aquileia fled, fled out to the coast, uh, to a little island off the coast, and uh, built. Uh, they built a church there. It's called Grado, and it still exists. Um, various other uh, communities moved out to the islands, and the Venetian lagoon had a number of islands that were settled. Uh, Torcello, we have an inscription. It's, it, it's another island in the Venetian lagoon. We have an inscription in the church there that says the church was founded in the year 639, the reign of the Emperor Heraclius. And uh, uh, But what we call Venice today, the city of Venice today, was probably a, a latecomer to this group. We don't really have evidence for uh, a settlement on that specific group of islands until about a little after the year 800. Okay. So over a period of time, then we, we see this uh, exodus of the population from uh, a dangerous situation on the mainland out to the greater security of, of the, this tidal lagoon, uh, very hard for uh, the Lombards on their horses to maneuver. You know, it's, uh, it's mud and water and, um, it, it, it's, it's just safer. In those uh, early years, do scholars have any sense of how they would have settled in the lagoon? Because it probably would have really lacked foundation initially. Is there any sense oh, of... Oh, absolutely. It, yeah. It lacked, yeah, it lacked everything. Um, there's been some recent archaeology to suggest that the lagoon wasn't entirely deserted before that point. Uh, so it was a source of fish, for example. Uh, so there were, you know, maybe small uh, fishing communities, but there was certainly nothing organized. There was no uh, permanent architecture in stone um, until the first, you know, that we have evidence of is, is uh, well, the church at Grado that still stands. Um, the church at Torcello is, is rebuilt in the early 11th century, so we don't have the original, but we have the original dedication stone. Um, so uh, it was always an issue, uh, if you build on mud, uh, it's always an issue of stability. And, um, you know, Venice, the buildings are always collapsing. The, the main uh, bell tower of St. Mark's in Venice collapsed, collapsed in 1902, had to be rebuilt. Uh, so there's always an issue of that. And the, what they did was they would drive uh, pilings into the mud. So beneath every building in Venice, there are literally thousands, if not millions of pilings, wooden, wooden pilings that have been driven out of the mud to try to create some kind of firmer foundation on which uh, you know, heavy stone structures can be, can be placed uh, with greater or lesser success. 
do scholars know why government at some point in time in Venice decided that they would develop essentially islands in this lagoon? Well, the islands were, were pre-existing. So um, it's just a matter of joining them together as, as they are today by bridges or, or whatever. Um, the, uh, the various settlements in the lagoon were under the command of a military governor. And we have to remember, this is still a Roman Empire, right? This is still, the Roman Empire, but an empire now ruled from Constantinople, Istanbul, in, in, our, in modern Turkey. And, but there's still a, a system of governance. Um, and in the 6th century, from the 550s onwards, the, uh, the Roman administration, we call them today the Byzantines, they call themselves Romans always, uh, the administration in Italy was based in the city of Ravenna, which is just a bit further south from, from Venice. And the territories under Roman rule would have a, a military uh, governor. Um, and we know the title because it actually appears in the Torcello inscription. It's the, the Magister Militum, the, the master of the soldiers. And so it was a master of the soldiers uh, responsible uh, for all these settlements. Um, in, you know the, the northwest corner of the Adriatic, and uh, slowly but surely, uh, that person, that office, took the, over the title of uh, we would say duke. The Latin is dux, d-u-x, and it's from that word, the Latin word dux, that the, the word doge, d-o-g-e, develops. So doge is just a local dialect corruption of dux. And uh, they are the you know inheritors of the title of Magister Militum, and it, it, probably the Venetians uh, began to have an identity, um, probably in the eighth century, as as Venetians, as people from not not the, where we think of necessarily just the city today, but the, the wider lagoon area. And one of our first references to them actually comes in in a Roman source. Uh, from uh, the decade of the 740s when there's a, an account of Venetian traders uh, being present in Rome and the Pope is actually quite upset uh, because uh, they're trading in something that he's, he's a little uncertain of. They're trading as slaves. And so um, and that's our first hint that the, what the Venetians, because the, the land was cut off for them, right? The Lombards occupied the, the mainland. So they're uh, their commerce, and, and that's what made Venice, Venice famous in the Middle Ages, was the development of commerce. It carried all the trade in the Mediterranean, their ships. But already in the, in the 8th century, they're carrying trade. And um, the Pope is, is very much upset because some of that trade, at least, is, is in slaves. And uh, there's nothing wrong with slavery in those days, right? That wasn't the issue. No, nothing, no moral objection to slavery. The moral objection, or the religious objection, was that Venetians were getting slaves, were buying slaves in Rome to sell to the Muslims of North Africa. And the Pope was upset because he didn't think Christians should be sold as slaves to, to non-Christians. It's all right to sell Christian slaves to other Christians, but you couldn't do it to non-Christians. 
So we get the story of Pope uh, Zacharias going to the slave market and being upset, and he actually buys up all the slaves. He he reimburses the Venetian uh, merchants and buys up all the Christian slaves. So that's our first reference uh, to uh, Venetian commerce. And then, of course, uh, it goes on to be uh, very, very important and very famous. And I'll have some follow-up questions regarding trade and import and export and things like that. Um, there probably would have been an option by of the civilization to build on the mainland. And this answer might be partly interpretive. Do you have any sense of why they chose to develop these islands more and more over time versus just building their city on the mainland? Well, the mainland is 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 a different political structure, right? So the mainland is is owned, settled, run, administered uh, by the, these newcomers, the Lombards, who come in in the five sixties, and they're there for two centuries, a little over two centuries, until they are. Um, absorbed by another power in, in Western Europe, the Franks. So uh, Charlemagne uh, comes down across the Alps, and in uh, 774 he uh, defeats the last Lombard king, King Desiderius, and he uh, simply absorbs the Lombard kingdom into, uh, into the Frankish uh, Empire, and uh, his own son, Pippin, is crowned as king of Italy. So, uh, and, and that doesn't change. So the mainland is run by the Lombards, and after 774, it's run by the Franks. And uh, they are, I wouldn't say always at war with, um, with the Roman Empire, but there, there certainly are lots of times of conflict. And in fact, that's the reason why the capital of the settlements in the lagoon, uh, the, what today we would call the city of Venice, is where it is. Because uh, in 809, uh, Charlemagne's son Pippin, king of Italy, he uh, he captures the previous capital, which was a bit further south from the lagoon, a place called Malamocco. And so uh, the resistance to the Franks regroups. Um, a little bit further north on the group of islands that they called in, in their day Orivo uh, Alto, a place called Orivo Alto, which is um, the source of the word Rialto, which is the, the, a center point uh, in, in Venice. And uh, the, the dukes, uh, the doges, uh, they, they established themselves there from, from 810 onwards. And there's a continual struggle in this period uh, among the Venetian community, are they going to stay true to the Roman Empire, which has its capital very, very far away mm. in Constantinople, um, or are they going to throw in their lot with the people on, on the mainland, the Franks? And um, there are times even of civil war um, with you know people, different parties, different factions uh, going in different directions on this. But ultimately, uh, they always throw in their lot. They remain. Uh, true to their uh, Roman imperial uh, origins. And I think there are probably a number of reasons for that. Um, uh, trade was a big, important thing. Uh, much of the trade was with the East, it was with Byzantium, or through Byzantium, because Byzantium controlled access to the Silk Route to the East. 
and uh, also it's a lot easier um, to uh, to be subject to someone who is thousands of kilometers away and can't really do much to you on a day-to-day basis than, uh, than to be subject to someone who's just next door mm. and, and has a big army. So, um, but what, what really protected Venice and allowed them to do this uh, it, in the early years, eventually they would develop a huge military force, particularly a navy, but what allowed them to do this in the early years was, was the geographical situation, the fact that these, the lagoon was really impassable to foot soldiers, to, uh, to cavalry, um, you know, it was a, you know, there's lots of mud and water and, and it, it, it was a natural defense. Hmm. And we have to remember that Venice had no direct link to the mainland until the, the railway, uh, the causeway was built to house a railway. And that was, that was in the, the uh, in the 19th century. And, uh, I could be could have the exact date wrong, but I think the road bridge, the, the you know, you can drive into the outskirts of Venice today. I think that's only from the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. know, the mainland was the was the back door, right? Mm-hmm. Venice's front door always faced out to the to the Adriatic, to the ocean. In the Middle Ages, and this may may vary, what was the population? What was the estimated population in Venice? Oh, it would have been a couple of, uh, probably a couple hundred thousand um, okay. cities in, in Europe weren't, uh, weren't huge uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, generally, the medieval population of Europe was, was probably much less than in the ancient world. Uh, in the city of Rome, for example, we think it was in the year 300, was probably about a million. In the year 600, it may have been as low as 50,000. So... Uh, war and disease and they had a number of pandemics plagues and so on um, these tend to wipe out populations uh, venice was probably one of the larger cities in europe and say in the late by the late middle ages mm. and uh today though it's it's down to uh oh i think about fifty thousand people sixty thousand people at most living in venice um you know, most people live on the mainland now, and and most people who work in Venice live on the mainland and commute. So it's probably uh, too expensive for a lot of people to live in in Venice. A lot of the places probably get rented out um, through short term exactly. rental and stuff these exactly. days. So they they've had a crisis here with no tourism, um, and I'm told that the uh, you know, obviously I've been there myself in the last twelve months, but I'm told the water has never been cleaner. And uh, the streets never empty here. And so, mm. so if you're in the tourist business, which most Venetians are, it's been a terrible, terrible year. But mm. uh, otherwise, it's probably been a good time. So can you speak more about culture in Venice? And is there a point in the Middle Ages when scholars would consider Venice to have become a high-cultured city? Does that occur in the Middle Ages? And can you speak more about culture? Sure. So uh, Venetian uh, culture has uh, this foot in both worlds uh, from, uh, I mean, it's obviously it's located physically, geographically in Western Europe, but because all of the trade and commerce is with the Eastern Mediterranean, with the Muslim world and with Byzantium, uh, 
there was this very very strong influence from from the east in in the physical appearance of venice and we see this most clearly i think in, in their art and architecture and the prime example is the church of of san marco saint mark's the great shrine church of venice which uh, in the middle ages is not a cathedral of venice incidentally the cathedral of venice is is San Pietro in Castello. Um, today, a, a very unimportant church, uh, far from the uh, far from the center. Uh, but uh, San Marco was was the the main church, but it was the the Doge's church. It was the Doge's palace church, immediately adjacent to the the, the ducal residence. And the church was built. Uh, well. It's built and rebuilt. The first church of San Marco is built about the year uh, 829. And um, the doge of the day uh, actually leaves money in his will for it. He dies in that year, uh, Justinian Partage of Pacius. And uh, so the the Venetian have to decide, you know, because architecture conveys messages through the building type. And there are various models for great shrine churches, particularly shrines of apostles, St. Peter's being the most important one for most of Western Europe, St. Peter's in Rome, but they chose not to look at St. Peter's uh, as their model. They chose to model San Marco on the church of holy apostles in Constantinople. So instead of a sort of basilica church along the lines of St. Peter's, uh, we get this great five domed church and we don't know exactly what it looked like at the first one in the ninth century because it did burn down in the 10th and was rebuilt in the 11th okay. but the church of san marco we see today is certainly there from the 11th century onwards and it it models itself on holy apostles in constantinople and we have an 11th century source actually says that explicitly and much of the kind of decoration not only the the, the, uh, for example the mosaics that cover the interior of san marco this was the the byzantine form preferred form of church decoration uh the sculpture and so on It, it doesn't look to the west at all it looks to the east and indeed and we should talk about year 1204 much of the exterior of San Marco is actually decorated with objects that were brought from Constantinople in the year 1204, the year of the Fourth Crusade. And this is the watershed moment in the history of medieval Venice, absolutely the most critical date uh, in its history. So, um, I don't know, do, we, do you want to talk about the Fourth Crusade? Is that uh, something we should do next? I think you're probably getting at the sack of 1204. Um, yeah. yeah, certainly frame it inside of how you, how you feel that influenced uh, culture within Venice. Sure. So the Fourth Crusade is, is an interesting historical moment, and it's still one much debated by, by historians. And the view that one takes of it tends to depend on whether you're sort of pro-Venice or pro-Byzantium or uh, whatever. Um, the Crusades, uh, as, as you know, as your, your listeners will know, 
um, begin at the very end of the 11th century, and their aim is to recapture the city of Jerusalem uh, from uh, from the Muslims. And uh, the First Crusade is is very successful. And then, uh, you know, in, in 1099, Jerusalem is recaptured. And for almost a century, uh, it's held by the armies of Western Europe, uh, mostly from what today would be France. And then uh, it's recaptured by, by the Muslim forces under uh, Saladin. And uh, there are a series of crusades aimed at trying to get it back. Uh, the Third Crusade, 1190, in which uh, the English King Richard, Richard I, Richard Lionheart, was involved, uh, unsuccessful. And then an attempt was made a decade later in the early 1200s, uh, the Fourth Crusade. They, these things tend to have received numbers uh, consecutively. And uh, the Fourth Crusade, the Crusaders needed to, you know, it's a long way from England or France uh, to Jerusalem. So how, how are you going to get there? Well, the First Crusade had done two things. They had gone overland through Byzantium, but they had to, going through Byzantium was a bit tricky because the Byzantines weren't entirely sure this was a good idea. And uh, they, so they, but they had to negotiate passage and some had gone by sea, but it was certainly a lot easier to go by sea. So the, uh, the organizers of the crusade made a deal with, with Venice and they said, you know, if you, you provide a fleet of ships to carry us and we'll pay you whatever, whatever amount it was. And in 1202, the Crusaders turned up in Venice, and uh, the Venetians were prepared to, to take them uh, to, to the east. So the Crusaders didn't have the cash. And uh, Venetians, <laughs> uh, they were very astute businessmen. And, uh, you know, their, their uh, prosperity of their city and their the commercial empire they would develop was all based on, on trade. And they didn't miss much. And so they said, well, okay, well, you know, it's not, not the best situation, but uh, mm. we'll let you work for your passage. We have some troublesome, uh, we have some troublesome uh, cities along the Adriatic coast that, you know, uh, they need to be taught a lesson. So we could stop there and you could help us uh, put down the rebellion and uh, then we can go on. So, mm. so that happened and they... Uh, uh, they uh, visited uh, uh, Zadar in Croatia and so on. And at the same time, uh, there was a uh, contest for the throne of Byzantium in Constantinople. And one of the claimants came and said, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you help me assert my claim to the throne, uh, I will pay you handsomely. And the Crusaders sort of liked this idea because they needed the cash Venetians. The Venetians liked the idea because uh, they had a whole section and quarter of the city of Constantinople, which is their, their, you know, the other end of their trading empire. Uh, so they liked the idea of being, uh, you know, more closely involved there. And so it ended up uh, that the Fourth Crusade went not to Jerusalem, but to Constantinople. And then along, it's a complicated history, but it, it ends up that the Fourth Crusade ends up capturing Constantinople. And we get what is called the Latin Empire uh, from 1204 uh, for uh, about half a century, a little over half a century. 
and um, with the uh, with the Byzantines uh, in exile. And this is the watershed moment. Uh, the Venetians uh, not only uh, get to claim a three-eighths part of the Byzantine Empire. That was their division of the spoils. They got three-eighths. And so the Doge took on a new title of Lord of a quarter and a half of a quarter of the entire Roman Empire. That was the Doge's new title. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, they also uh, quite literally brought a lot of booty from Constantinople uh, to Venice. And I'll get sidetracked here, if, if you'll permit me just for a moment to say that mm-hmm. the, the most famous thing of, of the many, many pieces that you can still see in Venice that we know came from Constantinople. Uh, the most famous thing are, uh, is our, uh, the four bronze horses uh, on the facade of San Marco over the main entrance. And uh, these have an interesting story because uh, when Constantinople was founded by Constantine back in the fourth century, uh, it was just a sleepy provincial town. And overnight, Constantine needed to turn it into a, his imperial capital. And imperial capitals have large buildings and, and statues and monuments. And so he brought a lot of stuff. He ransacked the, uh, the east, uh, some of the, small, of the cities in the east, and, and, and brought stuff to Constantinople, including in these four great bronze horses, which we think came from the island of Chios in the Aegean. Anyway, 1204, uh, the Venetians carry these off to Constantinople. And history repeats itself time and time again. So just as Constantine used them to create, uh, you know, a, a sort of historic past for his city, his new city, Venetians used them for that same purpose. And lo and behold, when uh, Napoleon brings the city of Venice, the Republic of Venice, to an end in 1797, what does he do? He takes the four bronze horses off uh, to Paris, uh, where they are for... Uh, for some 17, 18 years until uh, finally, uh, after the Battle of Waterloo and uh, the defeat of Napoleon and the Congress of Vienna in 1815, determines that they should be returned to Venice. It's the first time in history that anything like that has ever happened, uh, that booty of war is returned to it, to its owner. So um, uh, so those come to Venice. Uh, the other uh, interesting uh, piece that comes to Venice, it's just on the side of San Marco, uh, at the junction with the actual Ducal Palace, there is a, a little uh, group of, uh, of porphyry, of purple marble, marble, known as the Tetrarchs, because they probably, it shows four rulers, it probably comes from um, the time of the Tetrarchy, established by the Emperor Diocletian in the late third, in, in the late third century. And um, anyway, if you go and look at the Tetrarchs today, uh, there, uh, you'll see that um, one of them has a, a missing foot, and it's uh, it's been recreated in plaster, but it's not the original hard purple mar- marble. And by a wonderful coincidence of archaeology in the 1960s, the missing foot was found in an archaeological excavation in Istanbul. So we know exactly where it came from um, and from uh, where the Venetians took it. But the... Uh, uh, the really interesting aspect to 1204, 
apart from the, the, the cultural appropriation, shall we say, of a lot of material uh, from, from Byzantium. Really interesting aspect is what it does for the Venetian economy. Because up to 1200, you know, Venice, yeah, they're a major player in, in commerce in the Mediterranean. Their fleet of ships is carrying the goods uh, from uh, Alexandria and Constantinople and so on to the, uh, to the ports of Western Europe. So they are the, they're the, the merchants or the middlemen in trade. They make their money from that. But after 1204, suddenly it just explodes. And why does it explode? It explodes because what Venice asks for uh, from, from the Fourth Crusade, they say, oh, no, you know, we don't want large areas of, of land. We know we're not farmers. Um, you know, a lot of the crusaders, they uh, would settle. They settled the parts of Greece and, and, you know, they became the sort of feudal, feudal warlords. Uh, but, so we want what we want are islands and ports. So they wanted to protect their, their merchant navy. And most importantly, though, it gave them a lock on the trade. So by having all these outposts through the Aegean and, and into the Black Sea, uh, they were able to really get a, uh, you know, a step up on their on their rivals, and indeed in the next century, the great wars between Venice and Genoa uh, for you know who's going to control the trade. And I you know, always like to think that without 1204, which knocks out Byzantium as being the, the buffer between Venice and Asia, right? Byzantium's knocked out now. The Venetians have direct access. And of course, that is what permits Marco Polo to be in China a century after 1204, right? He's there, you know, 1300 plus or minus, whatever, whatever the date is. And that is when Venice's wealth really starts to explode, is in uh, the years after 1204, when they have direct access to the Silk Route, direct access to China, um, and um, they, they the wealth that that produces uh, is, is just unimaginable. And that will continue until something knocks them out, and that is uh, uh, the uh, the voyages of exploration, Vasco da Gama, and so on, uh, who say, "Well, you know, we don't uh, we don't want to be beholden to all these Venetian middlemen and so on. Let's find our own direct route to India and China." And that's what happens uh, with the Portuguese and Spanish explorations. In the you know in the, uh, the late fifteenth uh, century, and and that just knocks Venice right out of uh, out of the running. So they're no longer as important, no longer needed, and their uh, commercial power declines dramatically in the sixteenth century. And as a result, their military power declines, and uh, slowly but surely, they lose their their vast empire in the Eastern Mediterranean. Prior to 1204, did they have a prominent port for maritime exercises, or do you think it was the Fourth Crusade that was the impetus for them to build up a very strong maritime practice? They had they had been building a you know a commercial practice. Uh, I go back to my, my our eighth century. 
text talking about the Venetian traders in the in the markets in Rome, slave market. Um, so that that had always been the basis of their success. What happens after 1204 is they're no longer dependent upon negotiating treaties with other other powers. So we have uh, from the um, uh, the 11th and 12th century, a series of treaties with Byzantium, uh, giving them certain rights uh, in Constantinople that they can trade, you know, without taxes. They're entitled to have uh, yeah, um, yeah, warehouses and, and so on there. So we know there's a, a Venetian quarter in Constantinople. Um, what happens after 1204 is they, they actually get uh, territory. And so they, they, uh, they rule... Um, a number of islands and ports, so they, they actually have a, a physical empire uh, that they can use as the basis for this, this vast trading network. Uh, so, for example, the island of Crete is, is Venetian until it's eventually uh, captured by the Turks. Um, they'll also get the island of Cyprus uh, briefly at the end of the 15th century. And uh, their strength is their navy. Right? It's, they don't have a huge army, but they have a navy. And they developed the, um, uh, the, the practice that uh, a sort of uh, assembly line construction of ships in their great arsenal in Venice. You can still go to the arsenal today. Um, it, it's used now for the uh, uh, large part of the, uh, the uh, Art Biennale. Um, it's a vast, vast group of buildings uh, in Venice. And this is, was where they constructed ships. And in its heyday, in the 15th century, they were turning out a, a ship, one ship a day. Hmm. And they were using a sort of assembly line uh, method that, uh, that Henry Ford would use for automobiles. Um, so they didn't just work on one ship until it was finished, but they had, you know, a, dozens and dozens of ships, you know, from at various stages of production, and they would finish one every single day. And uh, their Navy ruled, ruled the Mediterranean. It, uh, it, it was remarkable. But all of that comes to an end when uh, there's a, another way to get to the riches of, of Asia. Okay, and a few uh, closing questions. Um, the St. Marco Church, presumably that was Eastern Orthodox Church? No, 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 not at all. No, no, it's... Uh, uh, the Venetians have had a an often problematic relationship with the Church of Rome, but there was no... It was, it, was, it, it is a, a Roman Catholic uh, Church and, uh, and always has been. Um, so... There is a there is an Orthodox community. There's a very large Greek community still in Venice, and there's a, a, a Greek church, San Giorgio, San Giorgio de, of the Greeks, De Greci, and there's a Greek community still in Rome, um, and, and a Greek Institute of, of Byzantine Studies in, in Rome. In sorry, in, in Venice, um, but uh, no, the, it's not an Orthodox church. It, it's a Latin church. And as you say that, I, I probably shouldn't have made that presumption because these uh, east-west uh, schism uh, hadn't happened yet. If because I think you said it's ninth, ninth century, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the main, the, the final break is ten fifty four. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Venice is is always torn. It's got a foot in both in in both camps, but uh, in terms of religious practice, uh, it, it remains with the West. 
what were the in the Middle Ages the predominant languages languages that were spoken? Uh, Latin and um, the Latin evolves into local dialects and uh, there is a still a Venetian a very remarked uh, Venetian dialect today although everybody would speak now there's you know a standard Italian that's spoken in, in modern Venice uh, but um, well, a Latin derived local vernacular would be the, the main language many in, in Venice would probably have been conversant in Greek if they were certainly if they were traders they would need to have a Greek uh, for trading in, in Byzantium uh, some might even have spoken Arabic um, uh, not a lot of evidence for that but uh, certainly evidence for trade with Alexandria as well okay if you were to summarize a few of the popular import imports that existed uh, and then if you're to summarize a few of the popular exports that existed in and out of Venice what would you say oh in terms of exports they uh, they did take things from the, the hinterland so uh, going eastwards would be things like timber uh, furs mm -hmm. and above all slaves and coming back would be silks and spices would be the two main ones okay by the end of the period, this is a closing question. By the end of the period, what do you consider that Venice was high cultured by that point, and and how would you describe what it was like from that perspective? Oh, absolutely. So um, Venice has always, uh, I mean, it's it's a mercantile community. It's a merchant community, but. There's always been a place there for learning. We have authors and writers. I mean, we have Marco Polo, <laughs> among uh, among many others. Um, it has been a place for knowledge of medicine. It's been a place for knowledge of crafts, uh, like glass, for example, it was the, the major European center for glass production. Still, it is very important for that. Um, what is interesting intellectually though is that when byzantium falls ultimately to the to the ottoman turks a lot of the scholarship from byzantium uh, a lot of the scholars flee and they bring their books with them so we get very very important collections of, of greek books greek texts uh, brought to venice in, in the 15th century by people like basario and um, even today, one of the great libraries for medieval Greek books, and not just religious books, but you know, copies of, of classical texts, is is the the, the Marciana, Biblioteca Marciana in Venice, uh, which uh, received a lot of these a lot of these gifts, and and um, you know, we need to remember that one of the uh, uh, great printing presses of uh, the early modern period is is Aldo Manutius in, in Venice, and because um, because Venice was always independent, they were very reluctant to let the, the church have any authority. Uh, they firmly rejected the Inquisition. It meant you could print things in Venice that you couldn't print elsewhere, or you could be thrown in jail, or even killed, executed for printing elsewhere. And so um, Venice uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries becomes a sort of intellectual haven for free thinking uh, that is very, very important uh, in terms of its contribution to the Renaissance. 
It's been great chatting with you, John. I hope that you get back to Venice soon, and I hope I get to Venice for the first time soon. You'll, you'll love it, Andrew. I uh, went for the first time when I was 18. I had got to spend six weeks there, summer of 1970, and I just fell totally in love. I can't wait. I've been t- uh, The closest I've been on the west side would be Milan, but haven't been to uh-huh. Venice yet, so I look forward yeah. to it. Thanks uh-huh. for coming on the show, John. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So again, everybody, the book that I referenced at the start of the episode that Dr. Osborne wrote as an example, Rome in the 8th Century, A History and Art. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. John and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.